Good morning, digital wildcatters, and establishing how incredibly important BDE is. We kind of went away for about a week and a half, two weeks. We had an episode that didn't record. We recorded at Empower a little while ago, dropped that last week. The whole fucking banking system has collapsed since we were together last. Shit, I mean, you know. We, we were, we're going to have to do this every Monday now. We might be the cause of it because you know how world leaders listen to our show. They didn't know what to do, so we give them a break, and they fuck everything up. We let them. So the playbook wasn't place. wasn't updated weekly that, that led to the the indecision or the, the the wrong decisions. There we go. All right, so let's jump in. The first domino that fell: Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, crazy, right? Arguably the premier bank of all the venture capitalists, et cetera. Kaboom! What say you, Kirk? Well. Um, you know, there was a great article by a uh, um, NYU professor that I follow, Professor Galloway. I like, I read his shit, uh, but sometimes he's he's really thought provoking. Scott Galloway. Yeah, you know yeah. Scott. Yeah. Um, I tweeted again uh, to him yesterday about this. I'm like, why not let Silicon Valley Bank fail in the first place? But l- let's put that on the side. I'm a customer of Silicon Valley Bank, and thank God I have access to my deposits, but. Um, it's a clusterfuck for a couple of reasons. First is they were mismanaging the bank, complete mismanagement. They didn't even have a risk officer for what last nine months. Um, they thought that interest rates were always going to stay around zero. So they didn't oh, hedge correctly. No, 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 no. Hold on. They actually hedged against interest rates going lower. <laughs> I mean, interest rates were effectively zero and they supposedly had, Hedges against even lower interest rates, but yeah, go ahead. No, they let they let well they let hedges drop off. I mean, I'm just thinking if you sort of look at the the under the covers of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, um, scary, scary on mismanagement. But I think there's a, a clearly a much larger story here yeah. about the consolidation of banking. <laughs> um, I, I, the fact that that you know the, the our current government immediately stepped in to say, hey, we're going to make everyone whole, which is interesting because they were backpedaling, you know, weeks prior about ever doing that again. So, yeah, if you really the only thing I have to add here and as as most equity guys, um, (laughs) when it comes to analyzing banking issues, uh, mainly ought to keep their mouth shut. But if you look back in kind of historical context, Washington Mutual was the largest of the, the the wave of failures around the Great Financial Crisis, and that was three hundred seven billion dollars. There's a nifty bubble chart uh, that I think I sent around yesterday. It's um, quite illuminating, at least to to someone like me. But the combined Silicon Valley Signature Bank um, totals about three hundred twenty billion. Just in those two banks, you know, I I would have thought maybe smaller than that, but you know, here we are with a a bit of an order of magnitude of historical precedent. What that all means for further bank consolidation, well, I don't know. But let, let's do this real quick because there's a shot my mom might actually watch this. So just kind of basic Uh-oh. banking one two three Sorry, is you take deposits and everybody right. has a savings account or a checking account, so you get that money. The bank then turns around and loans it so people can buy cars, houses, That's whatever right. the case may That's be. That's right. So 
deposits, you can get your money out whenever you want, right? I.e., that's a short-term thing. Loans, you get paid back over three or five years, and that's a long-term thing. So you have they talk about mismatch duration. So anyway, mom, that's the fundamental issue. If rates go up, guess what? Uh, if you don't pay higher rates on the savings accounts, people pull their money out, but you don't have the money because you loaned it to Kirk to go buy his Lambo or whatever. That's right. So, so that's kind of the fundamental problem. Here's to your point, though. Washington Mutual was the big one, and that was back, what, when did they go under? Seven, oh eight, oh eight, something like that. Well, they wrote all the rules that we're playing with now. Did you have a uh, smartphone back in 07, 08? No, I, I, think I, I think I still had a BlackBerry. Yeah, I had a BlackBerry. It's coolest but I couldn't toy go, ever. I couldn't go on an app and withdraw money. Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank had $42 billion withdrawn on Thursday. Yeah. You know, and so we were, again, this is rules written for old technology, not updated for the day. And, you know, bank runs happen a lot quicker. I'll just say, days. though, just on a side note, it's not really relevant, but Silicon Valley Bank's digital tools, they're really bad. So I'm I'm surprised what what what. What word is on the street, and and ha being an LP and and a few funds, I I got some real in, inside information on sort of what startups and funds were doing because a lot of the most of the venture capital funds bank was Silicon Valley Bank too. Um, they were advising their customers to pull their their investments to pull their money out, and um, it it created and once one fund does it, they talk. Everyone talks in Silicon Valley, so it. It's a a nightmare waiting to happen, actually. What's interesting is I'm surprised that no one was watching Silicon Valley Bank itself and the risk and the risks just sort of grow and grow with because they were buying treasuries and and kind of how they were trying to offset this risk is real interesting. Now, once a bank run happens, you're screwed because of the bank's business model. Uh, and there's nothing we can do about that. But I'm super curious that, you know, some of the white knights are saying, well, we're keeping our money in Silicon Valley banks. We want to stabilize the bank, but behind the scenes, everyone was get your money the hell out of there. Right. Yeah. And it's the, you know, the, the real problem they're trying to contain is the first and second and third derivative issues. Like, you know, small companies being able to make payroll, for example. Yeah. That it's have a big issue. Nothing to do with, you know, the business of banking per se, or even maybe even venture tech, but companies that are trying to make payroll out of deposits, or accounts, you know, at a bank at which, you know, you, you've had this, this sudden kind of torque of duration mismatch and the funds aren't available. I will say, though, it w which is kind of a funny story, is that when I started my last company, my investors wouldn't allow us to bank with Silicon Valley Bank because of their credit rating. So <laughs> it's interesting because of how big my investors were. They were looked at Silicon Valley Bank saying they're not credit worthy, which I found to be a little bit of a. At the time, I was like, "What are you talking about?" But actually, they might have been onto something. I, I think I'd heard of Sil Silicon Valley Bank before, but what was the big? I you, you've been in the game for a lot longer than I have for sure on the tech entrepreneur and the VC side. What what was the I, I guess the emergence of Silicon Valley Bank with that kind of core 
and the allure of, and, right and, what, and the what was that all about yeah i mean it almost has i mean I'm, i hate to say this because i i wrote extensively on the whole uh uh what was it uh what's the name of the workup what's the the uh the the company that went under that was a billion dollars that were renting to startups they had class a real estate what's that name of the workup not workup what we work we works this almost is a we work story because because what the, it all started i think whenever they started the company was the fact that silicon no one was catering to startups and why? Because a big bank, why would you cater to a startup? Startups have no money. They have no credit rating. They're broke. So Silicon Valley Bank started really to help entrepreneurs. And, and they do things like better than anyone else, like venture debt. I'm about to close a venture round. And Silicon Valley Bank will loan me money as a bridge before I get actually funded. They're great at doing things for, for entrepreneurs. Now, the, the challenge is entrepreneurs, as we we're saying, can't make payroll because all their money is at Silicon Valley Bank. So, I mean, it's an endless cycle, but it's almost interesting. No one else in, would, there was very few other players in the game that would cater to startups. And when you start a company, especially if you're raising money from savvy uh, angels or venture backed, uh, or, or venture funds, they all bank with Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank. So it's almost like, do you want to be part of the club or not? And, and if you're a startup raising money, you want to be part of the club, right? Well, you know what Silicon Valley did, Valley Bank did first. And, you know, as someone who used to sit in that seat, it was a really cool thing. You know, if you're running a private equity firm, you're always the largest individual LP in the fund, right? Silicon Valley Bank comes in and says, we'll loan you half that. Right. You know, we'll, uh, we'll loan you two thirds of it. You put up the first 20% of the money, we'll put up the next 65%. And then you put up the, uh, you know, the final, whatever the math is to finish that out, it's 25%. And that's like crack cocaine to a VC, right? You mean I just have a line of credit to make my LP investments instead of tying my own money up yeah, for 10 right. years. So, yeah. So that I forget that service for the event for the venture. Funds yeah. Is and guess what? Me as the, uh, as the venture capitalist can turn around and tell my, my, uh, investments to do. Oh, guess what? You're banking there. That's you know? right. And that's what yeah. they did. I that's mean, totally does, it, what they does did. it then create some sort of concentration risk just based Clearly. on I mean, the we're risk now appetite it. of, yeah. Of the bank's customers. It's, it's, you know, we always joke about an MLP. When you look at an MLP, there's a pipeline that kicks off cash flow, right? And the MLP has so much debt on it. Let's say four times EBITDA on it. And then you have the equities of these MLPs that are held by consolidators who then put debt on top of that. And you, you look up one day and there's like 10 times EBITDA on that, uh, on that pipeline, I think that's what was happening to the risk of these VC companies is you were just stacking debt all throughout the system on this. Someone so. someone would say that that when the masses don't see something that's obvious, we like to call it a black swan event because we're just too stupid to look at the the data. But but it but the reality on this this scenario is that as an entrepreneur, if you go to JP Morgan Chase, for example, and you say, Hey, I need a bridge fund. I'm about to close a round. I need money to make payroll. 
Chase will say, well, let me take it to my credit department. And then they run it up the flagpole. Five weeks later, they're like, we can't do it because we don't really have the processes. Silicon Valley Bank's like, how much you need? So from a micro level, it made sense why startups go to Silicon Valley Bank. It's a greased pole that everyone knows how to ride on. But, but what I think we're now get to see is that they took, they were taking a lot of risk. There was a lot of concentration risk, but the risk of the bank itself, they got over their, their skis and, and no one corrected it. So John Jacoby, who for years invested the Stevens family money, he was Jack Stevens, right hand man. His uh, line- The Arkansas Stevens? The Arkansas Stevens. I worked for him for seven years. Oh. And so- one of the uh, by the way, congratulations, Taylor Moore, University of Arkansas Razorback, and winning his first PJ Tour event yesterday. I have a Go Pig Suey hat over my boy George. Are we at the six degrees of Kevin Bacon moment yet? Yeah, I think and let's I get think there. I think we're that, that's usually close. me. <laughs> but um, what John Jacoby used to say, oh, hell, every bank goes broke at some point. point. Uh, we've seen contagion though off this. I mean. CS, I mean, Credit Suisse. I mean, UBS was just loving that moment. Yeah, so UBS is buying Credit Suisse for three billion dollars. I think it's, I think it's around two. I didn't I didn't see a, the final uh, number. So, so I had seen three. It's it's two pennies on the dollar. The the Saudis had invested what three and a half weeks ago, so they're losing ninety some odd percent of their money. Yeah, debt holders, certain levels of yeah. debt are getting zero on this deal and uh, UBS is getting Credit Suisse and some sort of guarantee, uh, government guarantees. I think the guarantee amounts to around 6 billion or yeah. slightly north of that is the last I heard. So crazy. I mean, so do we see that? And they're happening? about to write down 17 billion of the bank's riskiest bonds. So, I mean, this they call is- them tier one bonds, but they're still senior to the equity and the equity got something in the, and ostensibly senior yeah. debt got nothing. The interesting thing about this run is, you know, the Saudis by whatever, by statute or something, were capped at 9.9%. So supposedly the run on the bank starts when the Saudis said, no way, we're not going to invest more. But mm. that's not what they said. They were like, regulatory wise, we can't own more than that. So that started the run. I mean, do we see this? I mean, the all the talk is the regional banks in the United States. Do we see the run happening? Let's do this. On a scale of one to ten, one being one being Chuck Yates running on a Saturday morning after going on a Friday night bender, to Never ten happened. being metaphysical certainty, Forrest Gump. I just ran. What are we what are we gonna see on a bank run? Well, I'll tell you, I don't know about a bank run. I think the banks are already running. I see this as a massive consolidation point. Now, I'm not going to put my tinfoil hat on, but I will say this. I am. I love technology. I love technology. Technology is great. I'm a big digital. I love digital currencies, blah, blah, blah. But there's one danger. If you want to track everyone's capabilities, you you want to really maximize taxes for an ecosystem like a federal government, you want every you want banks to be consolidated. So what are we seeing is the regional banks, I mean, what we're, we're, we're looking at in the news, I mean, First Republic and Jamie Dimon's looking to bail out First Republic. It just, it keeps happening. 
I don't know if this is a massive run, but what I do see is a massive consolidation. And I see also a move away from paper to digital. And that's been happening anyway, but this is the sort of the final straw where now the big, whoever runs the world um, has the opportunity to kind of digitize this movement of this currency. And I think that is what we're seeing happen, play out in front of us is what I say. So I'll put you, I'll put you at a 10 on consolidation, maybe a four or five on a run. I I don't think I'm much different than there. What did, what did you say the number was last Thursday in terms of withdrawals online? 42 billion. billion. That Silicon Valley uh, cash they sent out the door. Yeah, I, I think because uh, the old rules of we're going to guarantee up to 250, you have to have so many physical branches per X number of miles. That's because they, they literally, when they read all these rules, it was about people physically going down to the branch, filling yeah, out a that's withdrawal why, slip. That's how 2008 yeah. happened in the first place. Yeah. We, we were talking about this too, you know, the, the, the notion that the Fed's going to capitulate here and go from QT to QE is going to be potentially compounded by the fact that people will stop spending at a personal level because all of a sudden security, the, the sense of security in, in, in their deposits has gone way down. And so, you know, does it create this compounding kind of mitigation of inflation with softening of rates or softening of the posture on, on QE, QT versus you know, I'm just not going to spend anymore. And that, you know, that means inflation kind of starts to take care of itself. And we're seeing it manifest in crude, you know, that that's other issues. But um, I think the most conservative people by nature bury money. You know, they have it in other things like gold and hard assets, if you will. I think those people in general, which is probably the older generations, as you will, not us, clearly. I think they're already getting nervous over the economy, stupid. The As I talked, you know, a few weeks ago, like we have wars, we have bank runs, we have pandemics. The Russians shot one of our uh, drones out of the air. The I Russians. Mean, the other major nuclear power. Gas. Yeah. And guess who's in, guess who's in Russia today? G. Yeah. That's right. G's in Russia. But I think the millennials and down, the Gen Wires, whatever, Gen Zers, I don't think they give a rat's ass what's happening because it's all they know. And they're just like, can I just Venmo you? I mean, they're still on Venmo. Like once Venmo gets shut off, then we're screwed. <laughs> that's, that's maybe that's it's not a bank run. It's the when Venmo shuts its doors and one of these, you know, currency collector type companies, that's that's the 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 bank okay. run that could really cause issues. Okay. So we got to get out on this issue. Y'all are both way too conservative on this. I am at a nine out of 10 on major bank runs in America. I still remember pictures from the Weimar Republic of wheelbarrows of money. And that happened fast. And that had no technology. Wait, dude, I'm at a, it's eight and a half. Well, you're on consolidation. Consolidation. Though. I'm well, talking that, run. I'm talking like mass collapse. Okay. But well, here's my question: Where are you gonna Where are you gonna put the money? I know you. I mean, you're gonna wind up buying T bills, right? I did have I a mean, guy text me saying, "Hey," and he's like, "Hey, 
you know, as he's he's whispering, I'm like, it's already on text, so Apple knows right. exactly <laughs> what you're trying to do here. He's like, do you know where I can buy gold that's not like reported? I'm like, maybe, but let's chat. Yeah. And of course, Siri heard it too. Yeah. So I'm like, yes, people <laughs> are starting to get nervous. So I'm I'm starting yeah. to ooh. There we go. I'm starting to amp up my number. Maybe I'm there, at a nine. There you go. All right. So Mark. We have the world potentially collapsing on banks. Walk us through what that means for the energy business. Oh, we finally got there. Well, it's it's just a huge overlay of risk off. And I think anything largely industry sector and certainly company specific takes a huge backseat to just the macro level of risk, mm. which you see a big sell-off in equities and unless the news is hugely positive. And I don't even know if that's the case. You know, we're in a, we're in a, um, the last few weeks where the, for example, the DOE numbers have been pretty tough. Now you have something including uh, the adjustment factor being outlier large, just creating fundamental uncertainties and questions about data quality. So if you bake all that in to the energy equation, I don't need to be, taking incremental risk here. And so let's wait and see how, you know, what the Fed says on Wednesday, you know, are we, are we going to get all that aggressive betting on, you know, the strong emergence of, of Chinese demand or the uptake of Chinese demand? The market's slightly oversupplied right now. Uh, what, what's the case for getting out in front of that? You know, don't talk to me about, you know, well-specific things. Don't talk to me about, you know, relative degrees of oil versus mm -hmm. gas positioning. Uh, just look at the rope, uh, the risk profile of energy equities in general. And when we get into this period of where the bets are really being placed on whether or not we go into a recession, whether there's a run on banks, you know, all these related events from a true global macroeconomic standpoint, you know, all, all the, the specific fundamentals to indus industry, energy industry don't really matter. So, Kirk, you are producing 200,000 barrels a day of oil in the Permian. You're unhedged. So, you're free production, and it, it's longer life production. You've been drilling for a while, and you got all of it. What do you do? <laughs> I have no no clue at this point. I mean, I keep selling. Do do I... I definitely don't want want prices to go down if I'm selling, of course. Yeah. I mean, is it sixty? What is it, sixty-seven today? Rude. Yeah. I mean, who'd have thought? I mean, oh, we were almost two X this. I know. When uh when Putin uh Putin marched into Ukraine. I, Mark, I saw, what do you do? I saw let me okay. finish the last point. I saw yeah. one um feedback from the road, if you will, analysts out talking to I think it was TPH, talking to investors in general. Um sentiment was look we're we think this is a a good buying opportunity but there's patience with respect to putting that money to work and so um you know i as 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 an operator i hope at this point that i've gotten uh, my leverage house cleaned up i'm probably taking if I can get out of some things in my lesser inventory from a drilling commitment, I'm probably laying those rigs down and conserving cash flow. 
Because, you know, you could have talked me a year. I'm CEO a year ago of a company. Putin marches into Ukraine, $120 oil. If my guys and gals walked into my office and said, man, let's go inflation. Borrow. Well, yeah, inflation's through the roof. Let's go borrow. I even even more practically speaking, can we sign a three year rig deal? You know, because yeah. inflation's through the roof. I probably do that. So, you know, looking at these 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 rig rates or rigs running right now, I don't know how many of them you can shut down. I mean, I'd love to see some data on how many long term contracts are out there because I probably would have signed them. Yeah, you have multi wall pads. I, I think someone we talked about this a little bit last studio show about whether or not. Uh, gas rigs would start coming off. We'd seen fairly stubbornly high gas-directed rig count. And part of that is is a timing issue and contract uh, contractual commitment. Uh, there's something conjectured uh, this week or last week's uh, rig data points, 555 oil-directed rigs running versus I think the number when crude was last year, last year roughly two years ago or May of 21, was about 330. 250 of those 55 thereabouts are, of those 555 are in the hands of private operators. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they do um, in terms of, of maneuverability, right? I mean, aren't we, aren't we repeating the same mistakes? I mean, what did we learn from the shale boom? I mean, cash flooded. There was no financial discipline. How many people went bankrupt? I mean, this is one of those But you're moments. not going to lever up to get through this. I, I think that's the I, one thing that... I'm like, borrowing today sounds like if... It's almost like saying I need a grand slam to win. I, it, it's, it could pay off huge, but I say the risk of it paying off is, is not worth it. Well, and the, the other thing too is it's not like... I mean, the, the thing about the shale revolution is... You traded it ten to twelve times EBITDA or fifty thousand dollars an acre or whatever right. wild ass metric you want to talk about. There was all the incentive to go borrow and Big buy time. more and do it. Nowadays, it kind of three to four times EBITDA. I don't think you're incented to do that. So if the rigs can come down, I think they come down. It's it's the long term contract issue that I don't have a good. If, handle if we're on. more disciplined today, and and as a result of what we've learned over the last three years, then faced with this type of, you know, potentially structural set of challenges outside of strictly the energy sector, then the prudent consistent from a, a risk appetite standpoint would be to take, take rigs down and conserve capital. I mean, I just, you know, you think that that last year was the most volatile year on record for gas prices. And so we think about, like, we're talking about from, from the supply perspective, there's a lot of gas in the ground, but, but there's been a lot of transportation issues and we've got, we've, you know, it's actually, you have to look at the actual granular details to figure out what to do. So if I'm in the Permian, you know, probably not, not as worried, but I'm looking at, at some of these supply constraints, as well as, you know, the, the fact that coal fired power plants have been retired in mass, there's not enough inventory to replace it really is almost depends on where you are and what the opportunity is and and so i i mean it's this is an amazing amazing 
time right now because of the, the massive volatility. So here's what we're going to do. And I'll go first this time because usually I put y'all on the spot. You're an operator. Define operator however you want to do it. I'm an operator. I'm dropping rigs today. Uh, I might be buying some out-of-the-money puts just just because. Because uh, there is a there is a bad 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 wrong scenario in front of us Big possibly, time. especially so, if you one of your original New Year's broadcast comes true. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. China and Russia are meeting right now. I mean, there's a lot of volatility. I mean, and yeah. Tr- if Trump gets arrested, boom, nuclear. It, everything just Dog, dogs and cats sleeping together. together. Mass yeah, hysteria. Yeah, mass hysteria. Okay, so as an operator, I'm dropping rigs, doing some sort of hedging to the downside. I'll let the the smart, geeky traders in my organization f- figure out exactly how to do that. Yep. And I'm if I've got debt, I'm paying down debt. And I may even disappoint my shareholders a little bit by, hey, guys, we're going to cut the dividend a little bit just to, to do it. But I'm going into hunker down mode. Mark, what are you doing as CEO? Well, as CEO, I'd, I'm doing the same thing I, I did for 10 years as a portfolio manager of equities, which is looking for the most efficiently priced downside protection, picking my tolerance point, whether it's 10, you know, 10%. Your long puts your, your, would be very expensive here, just given the, the level of volatility. So, you know, what, what's, your, what, what's your risk assignment? to the various degrees of that downside scenario and then building a, you know, meaningful put position around that. Some of that will be governed by high, you know, how low I've gotten my leverage profile and how clean my balance sheet is. Is it a fortress balance sheet as Arjun Murthy calls it to withstand another, I agree with you. I think the term black swans a little bit over overused. overused. Um, In the annual non-recurring black swan event. That's right. And, if you if you if you're scratching your head about well, in in the category of maybe overthinking a little bit, I do believe all of these, you know, kind of gut punches that we've been through in the last well hell since 2014 have done nothing but constructive things for the macro because it's 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 protracted the underinvestment in the global production base, and you're just not going to be able to to kind of restart that. Assuming there's a you know a real healthy demand spike uh, coming at us later in the year or into 24, so I'm 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 buying the insurance today. Okay, right? so you and I, you and I are kind of here, Kirk. If you're going to do the same thing, I have a different question for you. What is it? Um, is there any reason to go on the offensive here? Go buy everything you can. I mean, I'm going to back, back the truck up. I'm conservative. Lever the balance I, sheet. I want to keep give my, your stock to anyone that'll take it. I'm worried about number one, my employees and them keeping their jobs, and two, my investors. Ultimately, my investors want um, transparency, and and usually, I think companies that traded the highest multiples have the most predictability and transparency, and they're focused on three important things. Liquidity, profitability, and growth. In a volatile market, in these volatile times, we really don't have a lot of predictability. 
So I'm like, the risk is too high to back the truck up, go borrow a bunch of money and try to buy the farm. Now, there were guys that could afford it, um, you know, the Rockefellers of the world that figured out how to do that. But I don't think as a small producer, I'm not in a position to go back the truck up. I'm here like, let's just keep operations. Let's keep going. There's too much unknowns. I'm not going to be able to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. And unless I'm in that environment, I can take a little bit bigger steps. So I'm saying conservative. Let, let me add one thing to this. I, I do think, and I've made this point before, I do think we're in a longer term period of where the industry has been taught the lesson that motivates much more deliberate behavior. So if you're the mm -hmm. only one out there being really aggressive, back up the truck right now, you're kind of competing with yourself. And, and it may be naive to say that you're going to have a little more time because there's going to be some hesitation when we get a bit more of an all clear signal, there's not going to be this mad frenzy of trying to snap up every, you know, set of properties, for example, using the EMP side that we can. I think there's, there's a more deliberate pace even coming out of this. And we're going to need to see more in terms of that all clear because, you know, we, we've been through uh, some unprecedented things Hell here from back. a, from, yeah, well, from a liquidity it. standpoint, uh, from an inflationary standpoint, from a cost of capital standpoint, everybody, you know, trading at three or below times EBITDA, you're, you're just not going to be aggressive uh, with your your equity capital, given what your equity holders have been telling you and demanding yeah. for yeah. an extended period of time. So let's do this, kind of our, our get out question. Um, and uh, Kirk, I'll go to you first. You are now the chief investment officer, and we'll just say Rice University, my alma oh. mater. So you got, you know, call it a seven, eight Smart billion people over dollar. there. Oh, I know. You know, this is really cool. We got to give a shout out to Allison, Allison. Thacker because she's great. Uh, my dad and mom have given a scholarship at Rice. So you get a package from the Rice management company, i.e. the endowment, and it shows what the returns over time have been. And dad's like sitting there going, I wish they'd manage my money. So anyway, I, I sent that to Allison. So you're Allison Thacker, um, and you can have a little bit different objective than Rice wants. Take it wherever you want to go. But you've got an endowment of five to ten billion dollars. Tell me your portfolio construction today, and then tell me where energy, if any, is going to fit into that. And let's let's be on the record here making calls so we can look back at this in two or three years. Well, I'm going to only focus on the energy side. Okay. I'm long gas. Okay. I, I think long U.S. gas. Okay. I think we could be the cheapest producers. I believe in exporting. I think LNG, U.S. export is big. So I'm going to have a portfolio of of long gas assets in the U.S. Okay. I, I, how I whether I put that into, you know, individual companies or or not, you know, I'll let the smarter people figure out exactly what to buy specifically. But that's an asset I think is going to be pay dividends long term. All right, Mark, you can be the energy investor and say where you're going to do it, or you can go up top and be CIO and talk your whole portfolio if you I, want. I, I'm going to stick with energy here as okay. well. Um, and so you're not going to buy General Mills. We're not going to talk food and <laughs> being consistent with. Um, and I, I may step outside of the classic definition of energy and being consistent with my first draft pick 
and the energy go. draft of natural Ooh. gas. I agree with that as a, a structural long-term thing heading into the end of the decade. I think we may have a couple of soft years to go here, but uh, there, there's no way around what's coming um, in terms of the global supply chain, right, and the demand that's going to come out of that uh, or that's going to drive that. Um, I, I would be with the Fortress balance sheet, U.S. integrateds. Um, I might have a position in, you know, the highest quality Permian, which is nice and boring right now. If you look at the names that are still available that have some capital liquidity. Uh, so, you know, I, I like the best basins in the world. I like U.S. gas. Um and, and the kind of add-on or the extension, because I think we will continue to push hard on the renewables additions that are going to be made, particularly batteries and the like. Uh, I really like where minerals sit right now. I just don't know how to express that. There are a mm. lot of people that cover that for a living. But I, I go back to to the the notion that I think if you took Apple's market cap today and used that to buy mining companies, you could buy all 100 of the top 100 yeah. publicly traded mining companies and have enough left over to buy, I think, two years worth of global copper production. I think, I think the root or the kind of foundation element, the cornerstone of batteries and renewables is, you know, got some multiple expansion ahead of it long term, just because of the, the scarcity of supply. That's that's going to be needed to address if we're going to get to these multiples of growth in uh, batteries and EVs, for example. You could read my blog on this on, on the scarcity of those materials. I have. We're, we're running up against a brick wall, so yeah. I think that's a pretty wise wise move. What say so, you? So Sean? I'm going to play CIO here. Okay, and I'll make this up. If generally you're a third public equities, you're a third public debt, and you're a third private capital. As, a, as an endowment, just to kind of make up a, a number, massive shift for me into inflation hedges. Ooh. So where of that private capital, at one point, I think in the middle of the heyday, maybe 10% of that was kind of energy, maybe 12% mm -hmm. was energy, and that was your traditional inflation hedge. I've got 40 to 45% of the portfolio in inflation hedges. And I'm going wow. old school gold. I'm going Bitcoin. I'm going energy and commodities because I'm scared we've hit Weimar Republic time. Uh, the rest would be more kind of heavily weighted. Uh, I'll stick here in the United States because I think we're going to be the healthiest member of the leper colony would be in uh would be in uh would be in US equities of kind of all of our all mm -hmm. of our best companies and I will have the the lowest amount of uh of uh bonds on record that I've ever had. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> and Allison's going do the opposite now. Great but, call on gold by the way. So, yeah. All right guys, does anybody have a finger of the week? Well, I can tell you some good news and bad news. There you go. Lead on us. Global warming, according to the UN, global warming set to reach 1.5 C sooner than we thought. Okay. And, and level set it here. What does that 1.5 C mean in terms of a reference point or a baseline? No idea, man. 
Yeah, it was eight. Tuesday, eighteen fifty, right? Because that was, was the low, that was the lowest point uh, we've seen in the last ten thousand years. Let me get. Although I have a I have a dear friend coming on the podcast tomorrow, and it'll probably drop eighteen fifties. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It is. that's because it was the lowest. It's a bit of a quiz you passed. Yeah, exactly. So where's the lowest point? There we go. Yeah. So the according to the almanac, the 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 fundamental fact of these predictions or these trend analyses is that they're looking at multi-decade endpoints or prediction points that are purely model-driven, right? Absolutely. And so we could do a whole episode on modeling old reservoir engineer here and modeling dynamic complex natural systems is corporate finance not, analyst right here. Yeah, I we, we model legal models. What do you yeah, want it to say? Had, I never had an answer. Yeah, uh, so never right. I may not have a finger of the week, but I have a thumb of the week. All right. Give us a thumb, man. If you're, if you're not paying attention to baseball, there's something going on right now called the world baseball classic. It's, it's like baseball's Olympics. that comes along every four years. Players. Oh, two, they got hurt, didn't he? He did. That's where this comes in. I'm not going to give it to the pitcher. I'm going to give it to the baseball itself that found its way to break Jose Altuve's right thumb and have him sidelined for at least the first eight to 10 weeks of the season. And I heard somebody say it this morning, look, this is especially important for Altuve who's entering his 13th season. You know, we'd like to see him get to 3000 hits, for example, and you knock out chunks of seasons, particularly in later, later in careers. Um, Particularly because he's still borderline prime, so you hate to lose ten weeks in God, borderline prime. You said prime. it, and you're not supposed to say it. Yeah, he was top five MVP last year. Yeah, right. So I, I'll give it to the actual ball that broke broke his thumb. All righty. So, we'll, so it's we'll, the thumb of the week. We'll do that. That being said, it's good to see Mike Trout actually play meaningful games. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, Appreciate you tuning in. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and we're out.